Chapter 1 tonight, and we want to look at verses 1 through 6. Uh, coming judgment on Judah is what I've titled the message. And, uh, you know, first we studied Habakkuk that presents uh, the probing question of why. And the response comes back, the just shall live by faith. Uh, we don't always understand the why, but if we know the who behind it all, we should trust him. He's, he is faithful. And then we studied the book of Esther, which has as its theme God's providential care of his people. And there we saw that God is faithful to his covenant promises, often in spite of his people's unfaithfulness. And we saw that God providentially places people just where he has them for such a time as this. And that brings us to Zephaniah, which has as its theme the coming day of the Lord. Now, most people are oblivious to what's going on in the world, right? I mean, most people are just oblivious. They don't know where they came from. They don't know where they're going. They don't know why they're here. I mean, they're just clueless. But I know through the prophets, such as Zephaniah, exactly where we are at. You know where we're at? The world is headed straight for judgment. It's headed straight for the coming day of the Lord judgment. We don't have to wonder about this. It's very clear. In this context, we as God's people are to trust our all-faithful God and realize that we are providentially placed exactly where we are for such a time as this. God's got a purpose and a plan, and it includes you right where you are. Now, let's talk a little bit about Zephaniah. Uh, He appears to have been of noble birth, tracing his ancestry back to King Hezekiah uh, four generations earlier. Uh, He would have been the great-great-grandson of Hezekiah, Uh, He's the only prophet of royalty that we have, actually, in the Scriptures. And the current king of Judah, by the name of Josiah, that he ministered under, would have been a distant relative of his. So he's pretty well connected. Uh, Zephaniah was a prophet to Judah. And it appears from chapter 1, verse 4, as we will see tonight, that uh, Jerusalem was very possibly his home. Uh, When was the book written? Well, it was probably written somewhere between 635 and 625 B.C., uh, definitely prior to the fall of Nineveh in 612, because Nineveh was still standing at the time that he wrote, as we see in chapter 2. King Josiah found the book of the law in 622 B.C., and after finding the book of the law, he implemented certain reforms in the nation. And because of the nature of the sins that Zephaniah calls out, it would seem that he probably ministered prior to that time of reform, probably prior to 622 B.C. And the purpose, he writes, to warn Judah of God's coming judgment and at the same time to provide a prophetic hope for the faithful remnant. So, in terms of the... uh, uh, Outline here, the theme, the coming day of the Lord, and the outline, we're in chapter 1 here, uh, through chapter 2, verse 3, warning to Judah of God's coming judgment, and 2, 4 through 3, 8, uh, God's judgment on specific nations, and then we rounded out 3, 9 through 20, future restoration for Israel. A little more background here. King Hezekiah reigned from uh, 715 to 686 B.C., and he was a good king. Uh, His son Manasseh was one of the worst of the worst And also his grandson, 
Ammon, they were both wicked kings. Ammon's son Josiah was only eight years old when he assumed the throne in 640 B.C. And that's the current king that Zephaniah is ministering under. Uh, Josiah was a good king who began to seek the Lord when he was 16 years old. And in the 18th year of his reign, as I mentioned, 622 B.C., the law of Moses was discovered by Hilkiah the high priest. And upon hearing the law, the king set in motion a whole program of reform. I think it might be a little much to call it revival because it didn't last. But there were certain reforms that he put in place. Under Josiah, there was considerable outward reform, but it was very temporary and superficial because the hearts of the people were largely unchanged. Josiah was the last of the righteous kings. He too was a good king, following in in the steps of his great-great-grandfather, Hezekiah. uh, But he was the last of the righteous kings. In the context of Josiah's reign, we find that the prophet uh, Zephaniah, uh, who uh, in his ministry perhaps prepared the way for the revival or better reform that took place under Josiah. Zephaniah, uh, through divine revelation, saw the coming fall of Jerusalem. It fell in 586 B.C. to the Babylonians, and he speaks of this event in terms of the day of the Lord. However, this phrase also has ramifications to a future judgment day involving the entire world, which we commonly call the tribulation period. In prophecy, we often see aspects of a near partial fulfillment and a distant complete fulfillment. And often prophecies of judgment have this two-pronged thrust. Zephaniah uses the phrase or something very similar to it, the day of the Lord, more than any other prophet. That is, he uses it about 19 times. So he is really emphasizing this theme of the day of the Lord. Now, Zephaniah, as do most of the minor prophets, has three main characters. The Lord, God's people, that is Israel, Judah, and the Gentile nations. And often there are three major themes as well. They are judgment, repentance, and restoration. Zephaniah speaks of judgment involving Judah and the nations, and also the future restoration of God's people. Let's uh, note the date line here, a little bit, some dates here. 722, we had the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. And now we have come to the the reign of King Josiah. And under the King Josiah, as we will see in verse 1, we have the ministry of Zephaniah. Then, I think, uh, his ministry, as far as what we find in the book of Zephaniah, is taking place probably just prior to them finding the book of the law in 622. And then, of course, the fall of Nineveh, 612. And the three sieges of Jerusalem and the Babylonian captivity, three sieges, 605, 597, and 586 B.C. Now, politically, it was a tumultuous time. Assyria was losing its grip on power. The Babylonians were quickly ascending to be the major power. King Manasseh had previously drugged the nation of Judah deeply into extreme gross idolatry. Josiah was now king of Judah, and he was seeking to reverse the idolatrous trends set by his predecessors. Again, it seems that Zephaniah probably ministered just 
prior to this time of temporary reform. This is an interesting quote from the 1500s. You know, how many quotes do we have from the 1500s? But this is interesting. Uh, Martin uh, Busser says, If anyone wishes all the secret oracles of the prophets to be given in a brief compendum, that is, summary, let him read through this brief Zephaniah. Well, he's saying the major, the major points of the prophets are, are, are here in this, little, in this little book. Well, interesting observation. Verse 1. The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So, begins with, the word of the Lord came to Zephaniah. Uh, the source for this message is clearly shown to be the Lord, and the word Lord here is the sacred covenant name for God, namely Yahweh. This message came to uh, Zephaniah, who traces his genealogy here back four generations to King Hezekiah, as I've already mentioned. And this uh, tracing back to Hezekiah does serve to show that he had uh, some royal, uh, some royal ancestors here. Uh, he comes from, from that line and would also show him to be a distant relative of the current ruling king by the name of Josiah. Also, it distinguishes him from other men in the Old Testament named Zephaniah. I think there's like four of them named in the Old Testament, but none of the others are shown to be of royal lineage. Verse 2 gets right to it. After telling us who he is, verse 1, here, here's, here, here's who I am, and I got a, a message from God. And here it is. I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. How's that for your first point? That's pretty, pretty straightforward. He comes out firing strong right out of the gate. He tells us who he is and he starts firing away. And it's a pretty dark book, really, in a lot of ways. He cuts straight to the chase. He didn't waste any words getting to what he wanted to say. Again, this message is not really Zephaniah's message. It's Yahweh's message, says the Lord. Again, Zephaniah was just the delivery boy. In verses 2 and 3, we have a universal judgment presented. And as we continue on in the book, it's clearly describing what the book repeatedly, 19 times, refers to as the day of the Lord judgment. Well, the day of the Lord... Uh, many of the prophets mention the coming day of the Lord, uh, including Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Zechariah, Malachi. All these prophets deal with the day of the Lord. It's a major theme in the Old Testament. But two books in particular have it as their central or main theme, and that is the book of Joel and also the book of Zephaniah. And of those two, Zephaniah mentions the day of the Lord about 19 times, which is more than any other prophet. Even though it's a short little book, you've got the day of the Lord written all over it. Well, the prophets consistently intermingled what we call, as I said already, the near partial elements of prophecy and distant complete elements. And we see this often in regard to the theme of the day of the Lord. Now, we might call the near partial prophecies the day of the Lord with a small t. And the distant, complete aspects, the day of the Lord with a capital T. You know, we remember 
what we hear, but if we see and hear it, maybe it's better. Huh? So, uh, the day of the Lord with a small t, Babylonian captivity. That's near, partial. And then the day of the Lord, the tribulation period, distant. Moody Bible Commentary, reviewing different views, says, Perhaps the best solution is to recognize that the day of the Lord described in 1, 2, and 3 is indeed the universal end of day's judgment by the Lord. At the same time, the judgment in 1, 4 through 2, 3 does not or does describe a historical judgment that also foreshadows the end of day's judgment. I think that's accurate. I think that's what we're looking at. So one more slide on this. Um, Here's what we got in relationship to the day of the Lord. It's a little blurry, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah, that's just a reality. Sorry, I can't help you on that. But But we call this uh, prophetic telescoping. The prophet, he sees this theme that he's dealing with. And there's a near element, as we see fulfilled in the Babylonian captivity, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the idea of God's intervention in judgment. And there are these interventions in history. The day of the Lord, where God intervenes in judgment. But it really looks forward to an ultimate day of the Lord. As we see this, the 70th week of Daniel, this tribulation period, ultimately. Now, when God says, I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, he is referring to the entire world. The word land is generally translated as ground. It clearly is using a reference to the whole earth as we go on later in the chapter, in chapter 1, verse 18. The statement here in verse 2 is comprehensive, and scholars in our camp are pretty much in universal agreement that the whole world is in view here in verses 2 and 3. This is not a localized situation. So this is ultimately talking about the day of the Lord judgment that we commonly refer to as the tribulation period with, if you extend it out, with the ultimate complete fulfillment at the end of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. The word consume is intensive. It means to totally destroy. In the final analysis, this is what the day of the Lord judgment results in. Uh, Peter runs to the end of the matter. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. That's how it's ushered in. I tell you, the rapture takes place. The day of the Lord follows on the heels of that, and it comes as a thief in the night, catches the world off guard as the judgment of God uh, descends upon the world. It will come as a thief in the night, in which the, but then he runs to the end of the matter. It's kind of like you got these two brackets. It comes as a thief in the night, beginning of the tribulation period, But then it concludes in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So a thousand and seven years later, at the end of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, we have this happening. So the day of the Lord is a a very broad concept. Again, there are various aspects to this broad day of the Lord theme with an ever widening theme of fulfillment. In fact, I think here are the key components. Uh, We have aspects of the day of the Lord related to Judah and Jerusalem. That's what we're going to talk about tonight in verses 4 through 6. We have it related to the 70th week of Daniel, the tribulation period. Repeatedly, that that judgment of of the Lord that comes upon the entire world is spoken as the day of the Lord judgment. 
And then we have it related to the final destruction, the final rebellion that comes at the end of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, which is put down and God destroys everything, uh, the heavens and the earth, and, and creates a new heaven and a new earth. And for emphasis, note that verse 2 ends with, says the Lord. And again, this is the name Yahweh. Verse 3, I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the And the stumbling blocks, along with the wicked, I will cut off man from the face of the land. Again, says the Lord. The pairing here resembles creation week, where on day six, God made man and beast. And on day five, he made the birds and the fish. And again, in view here is a a universal worldwide judgment. I mean, it's all all encompassing here. Man and beast, birds of the heaven, and the fish of the sea. And God says he's going to remove the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. The stumbling blocks refers to any idolatrous thing that serves as an obstacle to God. We're going to see the real thing that God is dealing with here is idolatry. All religious rites and objects of idolatry are going to be removed from the face of the earth. Can you imagine a world without any objects of idolatry? And I'm telling you, when Jesus comes at the second coming, things are going to get cleaned up, really. The prevailing sin problem of mankind in the history of the world has always been some form of idolatry. Idolatry is when you put anything in the place of or ahead of God. And that's always a problem. Anything that serves as a substitute for God in the heart and affections of a person is an idol. God alone demands that he be recognized, worshipped, and served as God. For in truth there is no other God. And being God, he alone is worthy of our worshipful allegiance. And really, we were designed to worship. And people will worship something. Uh, They devote themselves to something. They are looking for something, some higher power, something to serve. And the world is ever growing more wicked, and the idolatry of the world will come to a climax under Antichrist, when the entire unsaved world will worship him and his image as God. But at the second coming, Jesus Christ is going to put an end to it all. The world will be purged of idolatry at the second coming. And then special mention is made that God will cut mankind off from the face of the land. Clearly, this refers to the wicked, referred to at the end of the previous sentence, because chapter 3, verse 9 through 13, makes it very clear that a remnant will be delivered. So not absolutely everybody is going to be destroyed, but the wicked will be. They will be cut off. Mankind is creation's representative. And currently, the whole of creation suffers under the bondage of corruption because of the fall of mankind. God the Creator will ultimately destroy everything related to this entire world system because of the sin of mankind. And the only thing that will survive and go into the context of the new heavens and the new earth will be those souls who come to faith in Jesus Christ. And this is what we're looking forward to, right? This is what Peter says. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, thir- uh, verse 13. Nevertheless, we according to His promise... What are we looking for? New heavens and a new earth in which... Righteousness dwells. Everything's going to be right there. Looking forward. You know, we're talking about this. You know, Dad just went to heaven you know, a week or so ago. And, and we say, I wonder what it's like in heaven. 
I mean, nobody ever argues with anybody. Everybody gets along perfectly. Nobody ever does something out of line. You know, it's kind of hard to imagine what that's like. You know, you know how, what is dad's experience in heaven right now? And, uh, you know, all of the saints who have gone, I mean, we just can't quite fathom it. I mean, we live in such a fallen context. And even, even we have a little taste of heaven, we say on earth, I wonder if we, uh, how much of a taste? I think it's really pretty small in some ways. But anyway, a lot to look forward to. New heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Well, the Lord has been speaking generally where the day of the Lord judgment ultimately leads. But now at verse 4, he narrows the scope to a preliminary aspect of the day of the Lord, which is seen in his judgment of Judah in reference to the Babylonian captivity. Verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place, the names of the idolatrous priests and the pagan priests. Now, when God says, I will stretch out my hand, it's an image of power. How strong is the arm, uh, the hand of the Lord? It's all powerful. And this power is displayed in this context in judgment. And the object of his power of judgment here is stated to be Judah and Jerusalem, which was the capital. Jerusalem was the capital of the southern kingdom. And when God says uh, this, he is telling us why Judah and Jerusalem is targeted. The issue here again is idolatry, which God's people in the Old Testament were so prone to falling into. Had just an ongoing constant problem with idolatry. Now, he says here, I will cut off every trace of Baal. Baal is sometimes used generally in reference to idolatry. The name Baal means Lord or Master. And Baal was a Canaanite god who was considered to be the god of fertility or the god of storm and war. And some combination of the whole, of all three. Now, Baal worship involved gross immoral rituals. And God severely warned his people that if they followed the abominable idolatry of the Canaanites, they too would be expelled from the land. For example, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 18, verse 25, For the land is defiled, therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. And then again in verse 28, Lest the land vomit you out also. He says, don't do this. Lest the land vomit you out also, when you defile it, as it vomited out the nations who were before you. So God's warning his people about this gross idolatry. Don't fall into this. Here's what happened to the Canaanites. And if you fall into it, it'll happen to you as well. Now, the mention of idolatrous priests evidently refers to the Levitical priests who had defected from faithfulness to God to embrace idolatry. And pagan priests would refer to non-Levitical foreign priests brought in by wicked kings who propagated idolatry. The idea is all semblance of idolatry and all those associated with it, especially emphasizing the spiritual leaders who practice and influence God's people in this way, are going to be cut off. God says every trace of Baal, every trace of Baal worship is going to be extinguished. A footnote here. The Babylonian captivity did serve to rid Israel 
of formal idolatry. You know, it's been quite a while, right? How long's it been? <clears throat> well, we're going back 2,500 years now. And never since the time of the Babylonian captivity has Israel ever again fallen into overt formal idolatry, which is amazing, right? That is amazing. I mean, God did break them of this overt, outward, formal idolatry. You don't find Baal worship in Israel today. In fact, you don't find Baal. But anyway, verse 5. Those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops, those who worship and swear oath by the Lord, but who also, also swear by Milcom. Now in verses 5 and 6, we have four categories of sinners that God is going to cut off in the day of the Lord's judgment. First, he mentions those who worship the host of heaven, which they tend to do from the flat roofs of their homes. And from there, they would worship the sun, the moon, and the stars. Jeremiah emphasizes that Judah was also guilty of worshiping the queen of heaven, which had many names, such as Ashtaroth, Ishtar, Astari, Epaphrodite, Venus, all associated with various people groups, really the same basic goddess, the queen of heaven, but associated with all kinds of different people groups. She was a god of sensual love and fertility, and again, often involved in the worship of her were gross immoral rituals. Solomon erected an idol to this goddess, as we find in 1 Kings 11.5, and wicked Manasseh promoted her worship. Worship of the queen of heaven eventually morphed into the idolatrous worship of Mary. The book uh, Queen of All notes that throughout the world today, one, a really incredible phenomenon is uh, the many that are experiencing apparitions of Mary. In other words, she appears in kind of a, uh, some type of an image, like, uh, almost like a ghost type of experience. But uh, they're experiencing these apparitions of Mary. Uh, who in these apparitions claims to be, are you ready for this? The Queen of Heaven. And this is a recurring theme as they bring out in this book. Uh, here's a quote from, from the book. Today among her followers, the, the title Queen of Heaven is the apparition's most popular name. It comes as a surprise to many people that the Queen of Heaven is found in the Bible. Not once, but several times. The scriptures identify this queen as a false goddess. In Jeremiah chapters 7 and 44, God pronounces judgment on the children of Judah for their idolatrous worship of the queen of heaven. Certainly, Mary of Nazareth would not assign to herself the name of a pagan goddess, nor would she encourage idolatry. This entity must, therefore, be a demonic imposter. Well, amen to that. Idolatry morphs. It morphs from one form to another over time, but the same old sin persists. All forms of stellar worship are condemned in the scriptures. Going way back, to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 19. Take heed lest you lift your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the host of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole of heaven as a heritage. 
So many people today, including many professing Christians, are involved in astrology and horoscopes. Astrology is not to be confused with astronomy. Astronomy is concerned with the study of objects and matter outside the Earth's atmosphere, while astrology is the supposed divination of how the stars and the planets influence our lives. The use of the horoscope involves trying to discern a person's future based on the position of the stars and the planets relative to the time of one's birthday. All such activity is really idolatrous and occultic and condemned by God in the scriptures. Second, God addressed those who supposedly worship and swear oaths by Yahweh, but at the same time swear by Milcom. Now, this is a syncretism. Uh, it, it tries to have it both ways. It tries to serve the true God and this false God called here Milcom at the same time. And God will have none of it. The one thing about God is he says, if, you, if you're going to be loyal to me, I am it. I alone am God. I mean, what's the very first command? Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. God alone is truly God, and he demands that he alone be recognized and worshipped as God. And he tolerates none other. To swear by a deity meant that the person was recognizing it as a higher power to whom they were ultimately accountable. Only the true God is to be recognized as God. He alone is to be the one to whom we are ultimately recognizing our accountability. And we are to swear by him and him alone. Now, another name for Milcom is Molech. Uh, this was the chief god of the Ammonites. It was uh, considered to be the sun god. And the worship of Molech involved child sacrifice, which was an abomination before the true god of Israel. For example, in Jeremiah, and Jeremiah deals with uh, idolatry extensively, Jeremiah 32, 35, and they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom. To do what? To cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Molech, which I did not command them, nor did it come into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Now, it's amazing how Scripture consistently combines sexual immorality and idolatry. And I suggest to you that nothing has really changed. In modern times, we're still killing babies. In the name of, well, we might call it a sex god. Kind of like Moloch. Kind of like Baal. Sex gods. That's what they were. Sex gods. And we're still killing babies in the name of sex gods. We do it now quietly behind the scenes. We don't want to know about it, you know. Sucking the brains out of babies. Who wants to talk about that? I mean, you kind of do it in a, you know... You know a way that's kind of behind the scenes, kind of kosher in that way. Nothing kosher about it, of course. In truth, the scene is just as ghastly as it was in the days of Moloch. The sin is the same old sin of offering up children in the name of idolatry. We're putting other things before the one true God. A lot of times it's self-idolatry, it's sensual idolatry, which is what these pagan religions were all about, totally sensual. Probably can't read this. Their sons and their daughters, they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And that's true. 
And here we got today doing kind of the same thing. I mean, you know, idolatry kind of morphs, and yet we got the same old stuff. Verse 6, those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of him. Third, God says he will cut off what are described as really apostates, those that turn back from following the Lord. Uh, These people at one point claimed to be followers of Yahweh, but now they have completely turned from him, showing they were never really his to begin with. David Levy uh, has a good definition of apostasy. The word apostasy means a falling away, a deliberate and total abandonment of the faith previously professed, but not possessed. Well, in the end, God is going to cut these apostates off. Apostasy is the the major defining trait of the last days of the church age, by the way. Say you're looking for a sign. You know, there are signs related to Israel, related to the tribulation period. And a lot of times people will say, well, I see... Well, don't get ahead of yourself. Uh, The real emphasis in relationship to the last days of the church is apostasy. And that's where we live. This is where I think we live. I think we live in 2 Timothy chapter 4. The time will come. I think we're there. When they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Apostasy. Last days, apostasy. Well, we see what God thinks about it here. Those that were at one time following the Lord, supposedly, but now they turn, they apostatize. And fourthly, those who are indifferent will also be cut off. As it says at the end of verse 6, and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of Him. They're just indifferent. Some might not overtly be involved in idolatry or apostasy, but they're indifferent. They're indifferent to the things of God. They too are guilty of terrible sin. You want to go to hell? Just all you have to do is be indifferent. Uh, Hebrews 2 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which was the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? Billy Sunday said, A man can slip into hell with his hand on the doorknob of heaven. Yeah, you can get pretty close in a lot of ways, but just be indifferent, you know, and put it off. Someone once said, The safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Oh, yeah. You know, and I think we got a lot of situations where nobody's really bringing forth a strong warning. I mean, who wants to talk about the day of the Lord judgment? Let's talk about self-esteem. That's so much more encouraging. And we want people to feel good when they walk out. And, you know, it's kind of like sometimes the message most needed is not the one that you most want to hear. And that's kind of where we are. Charles Spurgeon, in contrast to this, said, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with their arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. Amen. Within a few years of Zephaniah's prophecy, and in effect a call to repentance, within a few short years, the day of the Lord, judgment, 
small t, fell on Judah exactly as predicted, and nothing went untouched. I mean, if you want to know what it was like, read the book of Lamentations. It was horrendous when the judgment fell. And I'm telling you tonight, I believe that the world is headed directly for the judgment day of God. The day of the Lord is coming. The prophet's words are coming. And nobody's paying attention. Yes, a small remnant. Widespread apostasy is predicted in the Bible. And as is evident on the scene today, is most assuredly on a collision course with God's climactic last day's judgment of the Lord Capital T. So many are into one form of idolatry or another into syncretistic religion, which claims a form of godliness and yet is into all kinds of other things. There are those who have plain apostatized, turned their back on God's truth. It's kind of become popular in recent years. And then there are also many who are just indifferent. Just indifferent to God and His truth. Well, this is a formula for the coming day of the Lord judgment. It was true in Zephaniah's day. It's still true in our day. Warren Wearsby writes, Even if they do not believe in God, most people... Let me back up. Even if they do believe in God, most people don't connect Him in any way with current or future events. I mean, He's just... Maybe He's out there. But they don't see life is really vitally connected to this living God out here. He says the closest we come to involving God in human events is when insurance policies mention acts of God over which we have no control. (laughs) Isn't that the truth? I mean, people don't, they're not cognizant of a living God who's moving and and working and, and who's involved in everything that's going on. They don't think that way. But whether people realize it or not, the God of the Bible is still the God with whom we have to do. People are oblivious to past history, as recorded in the Bible, and how it has been prophetically fulfilled to the letter. And they are oblivious to the fact that such a day of the Lord fulfillment is a foreshadowing of what is yet to come. What does the Bible say? Acts chapter 17, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? Why? Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. God's day of judgment, the day of the Lord judgment, is coming. The world is headed for judgment just as sure as Jesus was risen from the dead. That's what he's saying here in Acts 17. Therefore, God commands all men everywhere to repent. It's time to get right. We can't say we haven't been warned. The Bible is full of these warning passages regarding coming judgment. And now is the time to repent and get right with God through Jesus Christ. And as believers, what's our part for such a time as this? We are to sound the alarm. We're to sound the warning. 
You know, I often think about the book of Revelation. You know, the book of Revelation, all those sealed, bold, trumpet judgments. I mean, all those wave after wave after wave after wave of judgment. Chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. Are we done that? Chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16, chapter 17, chapter 18. What's that all about? We're not going to be there anyway, right? That's my theology. Uh, we're going to escape all those... Ju- well, it's to the church. I mean, these things are written to the seven... Why did God tell us about it? I'll tell you why. He told us so we could tell them. We are to sound a warning. And you want proof of that? Just go to the very, very end of the book where it says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. We are inviting... In light of all of this judgment that is to come, we are saying, come, now's the time. You need to be saved. You need to repent. You need to get right with God. Judgment day is coming. I don't know exactly when it's coming, but I know it's coming. I know the prophets are there for a reason, and it needs to be emphasized. As believers, now is the time for us to sound the alarm. For such a time as this, God help us to be faithful. To be those that are sounding the warning. The day of the Lord's judgment is coming. And therefore God commands all men everywhere to repent. Let's stand and have our closing song.